Psalm 45, starting with verse 1, My heart is indicting a good matter. I speak of the things which I have made touching the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. Thou art fairer than the children of men. Grace is poured into thy lips. Therefore God hath blessed thee forever. Gird thy sword upon thy thigh, O most mighty, with thy glory and thy majesty. And in thy majesty ride prosperously because of truth and meekness and righteousness. And thy right hand shall teach thee terrible things. Thine arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies, whereby the people fall under thee. Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of thy kingdom is a right scepter. Thou lovest righteousness and hatest wickedness. Therefore, God, thy God, hast anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. All thy garments smell of myrrh, aloes, cassia out of the ivory palaces, whereby they have made thee glad. King's daughters were among thy honorable women. Upon thy right hand did stand the queen of gold in Ophir. Hearken, O daughter, and consider and incline thine ear. Forget also thine own people and thy father's house. So shall the king greatly desire thy beauty, for he is thy Lord, and worship thou him. And the daughter of Tyre shall be there with a gift. Even the rich among the people shall entreat thy favor. The king's daughter is all glorious within. Her clothing is of wrought gold. She shall be brought in unto the king in raiment of needlework. The virgins, her companions that follow her, shall be brought unto thee. With gladness and rejoicing shall they be brought. They shall enter into the king's palace. Instead of thy fathers shall be thy children, whom thou mayest make princes in all the earth. I will make thy name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore shall the people praise thee forever and ever. We have here a wedding scene. It's interesting that this ties in with George's testimony and a sense of continuing the theme of a wedding. Here we have an unusual pair. Who is this royal pair? There are those who suggest Solomon as he marries a foreigner, Pharaoh's daughter. And it could be that the occasion for the psalm was the marriage of Solomon to someone. And yet the things that are said of the groom could never be said of Solomon. They go far beyond Solomon, a greater than Solomon is here. For instance, uh, look at verse 6. Thy throne, O God, addressed to the groom, thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of thy kingdom is a right scepter. <clears throat> and then, thou lovest righteousness and hateth wickedness. Therefore, God, thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. These two verses are applied in Hebrews to the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the groom here. And the bride, the bride is the church. Whether we consider the Old Testament people of God or the New Testament, the bride is the people of God. Often in Scripture we find uh, that God's people, the relation between him and them is that of a picture to us under the metaphor of a, a marriage. 
You remember that in Gomer's case, uh, Gomer, the unfaithful wife of Hosea, and God tells Hosea when he's so sick about his wife's unfaithfulness, he says, yes, and that's exactly the way I feel about my people Israel and their unfaithfulness to me, their husband. We read in Isaiah, thy maker is thy husband. We read in the New Testament where Paul refers to having betrothed his converts to Christ as a, as a virgin. We read in the book of Revelation about the marriage supper of the Lamb. When you think about the description here of the royal wedding, you find first we have a description of the groom and then a description of the wedding, a set of directions given to the bride and then a description of the bride. The description of the groom, first we have his contrasted beauty. Thou art fairer than the children of men. He is contrasted to men and he is said to be fairer. There's none like him. He's the fairest of 10,000. The beauty here, of course, is not just physical beauty or even physical beauty, but it has to do with his person, with his character. Grace is poured into his lips. His speech is gracious. He reveals something of tremendous import. When he speaks, he makes known that which is good news to men. Of course, we read in the New Testament that men were amazed at the gracious words the Lord Jesus Christ spoke. The wonderful thing he said about God's love to sinners, about coming to call sinners to repentance, about God's willingness and readiness to forgive. We have not only this contrasted beauty, but we have his conquering ride, as we are told in the third verse, Gird thy sword upon thy thigh. O most mighty, in thy glory and thy majesty, and in thy majesty ride prosperously because of truth and meekness and righteousness, and thy right hand shall teach thee terrible things. Thine arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies, whereby the people fall under thee. It may seem strange that here in the midst of a wedding picture the warrior theme is introduced, and yet if you trace back in the history of Israel, you find that when they had conquered a foreign people, they were allowed to take wives of these people. After giving them a month, giving the wife a month to forget her former relations, and then they were allowed to take her as their own wife. The Lord Jesus Christ, before he takes us as a part of his church, as his bride, Before the union between our souls and his spirit comes about, first has to conquer us. He must ride forth in all of his majesty and with the sword of his spirit prick our hearts. You notice that is how the kingdom is advanced here. It's through him girding on the sword. The sword is the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, which cuts you remember Peter preached on the day of Pentecost and Christ rode forth in his majesty and 3,000 were brought into his kingdom. 
3,000, it says, were cut to the heart. And they cried out to Peter and they said, Men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and you shall receive remission of sins. Paul went into Thessalonica. Paul told the story of Jesus Christ and of his own encounter with Jesus Christ. They are opposing him. There is one of Christ's enemies. And he told of how Christ had, in his majesty, ridden forth and blinded him, knocked him off his horse. A mighty battle between Paul and Christ. And Paul falls to his knees and says, Who art thou, Lord? I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom thou persecutest. Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And Christ's kingdom is advanced further, another soul falling fallen at his feet. And then Paul goes to Thessalonica and preaches and shares that story. And as he writes them later, he says, You know, my word didn't come, my gospel didn't come in word only, but it came in power, it came in the Holy Spirit, it came in much assurance. And he says, You turned. Christ had ridden forth and conquered, and you turned from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven. Christ rides forth conquering as Billy Graham stands up and preaches the simple story, the simple story that we just heard of as changing two individuals and then a marriage. That's how the kingdom advances, and the kingdom is characterized by Three things, truth, meekness, righteousness. In majesty, ride prosperously because of truth. Truth comes in where there is darkness as light. Truth comes in where there is error to dispel the error. Our minds are blinded until Christ rides forth gloriously through his gospel and conquers us by showing us our guilt, our need of him as our Savior. Truth is a characteristic of his kingdom and its spread. As I face up to what God has said about me, about the claims of Jesus Christ as the only way to God, the only one that bridges that gap, about the enmity between myself and God until I have been conquered by Jesus Christ and submitted my will to him. Not only is it characterized by truth such as that, but by meekness. When Christ rides forth and conquers, his kingdom is characterized by humility. As over against that pride that characterizes the world round about us. You remember how Christ pictured it in his parable of the man who received a kingdom, went into a far country to receive a kingdom, and his citizens shook their fists. And they said, we will not have this man to rule over us. Brethren, that's what characterizes every non-Christian in the world. Whether he's aware of it or not, he is continually shaking his fist and saying, I will not have that man, Jesus Christ, to rule over me. And where Christ's kingdom has come, there's an entire different attitude. There is a meekness. There is a humility of spirit. There is coming as a child and being converted. Then it's characterized by righteousness. Ride forth in righteousness. 
Of course, we know that in our own selves we have no righteousness. We all have sinned. We do not have that perfect obedience which the law requires. But there is a righteousness available from God, a right standing, a perfect obedience, which God will give to me, a sinner, that Christ worked out for me by his perfect life, described here as one of loving righteousness and hating wickedness. Because Christ lived that way, he now has available to bestow on me, the sinner, and you, the sinner, a righteousness that characterizes all within his kingdom. A perfect record given to those who put their trust, their simple trust, of being right with God, they put it in Jesus Christ. Not only is there that aspect of righteousness, a righteous standing, but there is the righteous life. There is the right doing, the right walking that takes place because when Christ gives us a new record, he also gives us himself to live within, to break the power of reigning sin and set the prisoner free. And so righteousness characterizes, as well as meekness and truth, those who are within the kingdom. As Christ rides forth, conquering and then uniting himself to those that he conquers in marriage, as they become a part of his bride, the church. And you know, there's... There's one in our congregation who doesn't know this, but there came a time when this one's mate called me and said, I wish you would go talk to my partner in life. And I was very reluctant to go. I felt that I would be rebuffed, but I went and was rebuffed. Several days later, this one called again and said, Would you go and talk to, talk to her again? I didn't want to go, but I felt I had to go. And I knelt and I prayed and I said, God, I'm very reluctant to go back. God, give me some word about this. And I opened my Bible, and I read this song. And as I read it, for the first time, the words of this conquering Christ leapt out to me. In majesty ride prosperously because of truth and meekness and righteousness, and thy right hand shall teach thee terrible things. Thine arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies, whereby the people fall under thee. And it was God speaking to my heart and saying, You go. I'll send the arrows home. The person will turn. And I went in fear and trembling, but with that verse in my heart and mind, and as I spoke, within a few moments, this person was on their knees with me there in the den, inviting Jesus Christ into their life. Jesus Christ had ridden forth again, conquering, making his arrows sharp. We cannot, but he can. We have his continuing reign spoken of, as it says, Thy throne, O God, and notice this is the Old Testament referring to the Messiah as God. Thy throne, O God, 
is forever and ever. It's a continuous reign. It will never cease. Brethren, are you concerned about the outcome of the world situation? His is a continuous reign, and he does reign, and he is in control, and we need not fear. Then we have his consummated joy, as he says, Thou lovest righteousness and hatest wickedness. Therefore, God, thy God, shall anoint thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. Christ so loved righteousness and hated wickedness that he came to establish righteousness in the earth through his death, to deal with wickedness forever through his death. And because he did that, because he took that shame upon himself, therefore God has anointed him with the oil of gladness. Christ said it was for the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross. And he has now entered into his joy as he has been victorious and has been able to establish his kingdom now through his death. He came to bring many sons to glory, and he has accomplished through his death that which shall ultimately bring all of his people to himself. This is his joy, a joy that we shall share and shall enter into, and even now can get a taste of as we too see people come to him, united with him through our witness. Then we have the wedding described. There was the groom described, and then the wedding described. All thy garments smell, and he mentions these precious, fragrant things, as he brings before our eye the very groom as he stands preparing for the wedding. It says that out of the ivory palaces, and here apparently a better translation is that there comes music on stringed instruments out of the ivory palaces as the march starts. King's daughters there, among thy honorable women, upon thy right hand the queen. The scene before us, an amazing scene, a scene that will constitute one day your other wedding. You will, if you're a Christian, participate in this wedding scene and feast as a part of the bride. The Lord Jesus told his disciples that he was drinking the fruit of the vine with them there, and this was the last time he would drink it until they drank it together in his final kingdom, the ultimate phase of his kingdom. And you and I can look forward to participating in the joy of that marriage supper of the Lamb. Then finally we have the directions to the queen, as she is told, the bride is told, to hearken and consider and incline her ear, forget her old people and her father's house. In other words, she is now to be totally given up to the king. A husband will not endure a rival in his wife's affections, and so we as his bride are to totally be given over to him. We're to forget our past associations that in any way collide with our association with him. We're to put him first, ahead of mother, father, brother, sister, 
whatever it may be, forsaking all in terms of putting everything second to Jesus Christ. And as we do that, we're making him our Lord. And she is reminded that he is her Lord and that she is to worship, to bow down before him. And then she is reminded of the compensation she may expect. As she says, as it says that as she does this, the daughter of Tyre shall be there with a gift, and even the rich among the people shall entreat thy favor, as the church is fully given over to her Lord. We can expect that as we honor him, he shall honor us. And even the traditional enemies will be forced to recognize the authority of God's people and the power. Even the influential among the people shall hold, shall hold the church in awe. You remember the early church? She was totally given over to her Lord there at the first. And what was the effect on the people round about? It said that they feared the Christians in terms of held, beheld them with awe. No man durst add himself to their number, not lightly. They realized that this was a different group of people, a solemn, serious thing, and no man at that point undertook it lightly. The power of the early church would be present again in the church as the church is entirely taken up with her Lord. Then we have a description of the bride as she is said to be all glorious within, her clothing of wrought gold, her internal aspect and external aspect. Within she is glorious because she is now a partaker of the divine nature, a temple of the Holy Spirit. She has been renewed in the image that God made her in. She has experienced the new birth. Every Christian is all glorious within, in a sense. And yet, without, there is this external clothing of gold, speaking of the good deeds that should characterize those who are all glorious within. She has raiment of needlework. She's dressed in the robe of Christ's righteousness. She has a joy that the world knows nothing of. With gladness and rejoicing shall they be brought. They shall enter into the king's palace. Brethren, this is an amazing thing that you and I are described, if we are Christians, as being married to the Lord Jesus Christ. And I wonder, I wonder if you are a spouse to him, are you in his kingdom? Do you know? You can know. You can know whether you're in Christ's kingdom, what characterizes his kingdom, truth, meekness, righteousness. Have you faced up to the truth about yourself and the claims of Jesus Christ? Are you meek? Are you humble? Are you willing for his will to be done in your life? Are you righteous in his righteousness and not your own? Have you accepted Christ as your mediator? Perhaps you realize you've never yet been a spouse to Christ. Well, the way it's done is pictured here by marriage. What do you do in marriage? You commit yourself to the other person. You come and in submission and in trust, the woman's part is to commit herself to the other as 
the one she will follow, the one she will obey, the one she will depend on. And that's how you come to the Lord Jesus Christ, to be a spouse to him. And for those of us who profess to stand in the relation of his spouse, brethren, what else matters in life? What matters it if we are not comfortable in this world? What matters it if we don't have much of this world's goods? What matters it uh, when this world is going to pass away and we are going to live with Christ forever? What matters it when the man who's on top of the heap down here probably is not a spouse to Jesus Christ? Do you envy him? What a fool to envy him. We ought to beware of being in his shoes because he's in such a dangerous position. How hardly shall they that have this world's goods feel their need of Jesus Christ. Brethren, we ought to have a continual joy welling up within us. I am married to Jesus Christ. Did anyone ever have such a husband? Is there any need that I have that he cannot supply? Is there any enemy that I have that he cannot conquer? Is there any fear that I have that he's not to answer to? Be it the fear of death or life? Brethren, do you realize he loves you? Does it make you feel good to know that your wife loves you or that your husband loves you? Does that kind of make your day for you sometimes when everything else has gone wrong? Jesus Christ feels about you much stronger than any human bride ever felt about her husband or any human groom ever felt about his wife. What need we fear? What need we envy? We have the greatest thing in the world. Let's give it away.